Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. And as per usual, before we begin our time together, I want to take a moment, let you know a bit of what's coming up in our community. So today, Clyde Glass is beginning a new series, Living by the Spirit. And coming up on June 4th, we have an online membership class. And if you've been here for a while or you've joined with us more recently and you want to see what being a member of Southview is all about, you can register for this class on Realm or our website. Speaking of membership, we have a special meeting of the members coming up on May 31st. It's also virtual, and it's to discuss and vote on the elders' recommendation to transfer Southview's Dunkley property to the Western Canadian District. So for those who are members, you can register on our website or on Realm, and then the pre-read material will be sent out to those registered shortly. The best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint, and you can find a link to that viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast, or you can go on Realm and join the group Southview Family Updates, and that will make sure that you're always getting the weekly viewpoint in your inbox. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we would love to hear from you, and you can also find an online connection card at the bottom of that viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. And additionally, you can always find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now today, no matter how you're joining with us, may your hearts be open and expectant because God is here and Jesus invites each of us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. Hello, friends. So good to be joined with you here and with those gathered online uh, today as we come in the presence of God to come to his word and let it prompt us to receive from Christ in the meal of communion. So thankful you're here today. And if we took a quick survey today on the question, would you rather have Jesus physically present with us here? Or would you rather have the gift of the Holy Spirit? I think most of us, as kind of a first gut response, would say, I want Jesus physically present with us here. How incredible would that be? But we also know that after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples of Jesus had him physically present right there with him. And yet Jesus said to them, it is better that I leave you. It's better that I ascend to heaven so that you can receive the Holy Spirit. It's quite a statement, isn't it? In fact, let's read how that ascension of Christ, which we are remembering and celebrating this weekend, listen to how it's described in Scripture. It's in Acts chapter 1. And this is what we read there. And as you hear it, remember, friends, this is a word of God. And we pick up in verse 4, and it says this. And while staying with his disciples, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, from John, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. And in verse 8, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. 
And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. So really, integrally linked with the ascension of Christ to heaven is his promise of the impending coming of the Holy Spirit. Christ's ascension was really the doorway into a new kind of life available through the coming and empowering of the Holy Spirit, whose scripture makes clear indwells every person who's turned in faith to Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul, he reminds the followers of Christ in Corinth of that reality, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, whom you have from God? So if you've turned in faith to Christ, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. So over these next three weekends, as part of our celebration of both Christ's ascension and then of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit first came with a new power and followers of Jesus, we want to look together at how we live by and are filled with the Spirit. And I personally found this matter, this teaching, so helpful in my own life Life, and we've looked at it previously in past years, and I want to look at it again because it is that critical for us. And largely because as I'm concluding my time of ministry here, this really is one of the final encouragements I want to give us. So we're going to cover a lot today. This actually should probably be two messages. But I don't have an extra week, so you're getting it all today. All right? So if you're wondering why, why this topic? Let let me answer that by going to the symbol that we have here. And just the symbol that we've walked through and we speak of has those three dimensions of up, in, and out. Up, the relationship with God through Christ. The cross symbolizes that. In, our communal relationship, the circle represents that. Out, being the arrows, going out with the good news of Christ, and essential to this life, as we say, is the word of God, which we come to regularly. Prayer, being essential in communicating with God. Love being the the final or first expression that we are followers of Christ. But at the heart of it, we say again and again, the only way to live this life, the only way to live this life is through the Spirit. The yes, sir. It is the only way to live this life. It's the only way we can walk with Jesus. Okay, so if I repeat myself today or in this series, it's because I want to be so so sure that we are clear on living by the Spirit. And really, I feel this in part because I think many followers of Jesus might agree with every part of that symbol, But in reality, they know little of the Spirit in their daily lives. So today, I want to look at some principles that we come back to regularly because they are so critical. Okay, so first, let's just start here as a foundation point. Let's just remember who the Holy Spirit is. 
Four quick points about this. We could do a separate message on each one of these. We're going to review it quickly. For one, let's remember from what Scripture says that the Holy Spirit is a person, meaning the Holy Spirit is not an it or a thing. It is a who. It is God, which relates to the second point is the Holy Spirit is God because we worship a triune God. Scripture describes. It is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it was the early church right around the year 200 AD that began using the term Trinity to describe the triune God that's described in Scripture. So the Holy Spirit is God as much as God the Father and Jesus the Son are God. And then the third element for us to remember in this is that the Holy Spirit was the power behind Jesus' ministry. Everything Jesus did, he did not by his own divine power, Scripture says, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. And and one of the reasons that is so profound for us, to put it another way, is we have access to the same divine power as we live and minister that Jesus did. Okay, then a fourth point. Again, all who believe in Christ are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Scripture makes that evidence. Okay, so with those realities, kind of as our foundation, let's turn to the book of Ephesians. We're going to jump off from there, but this is what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. He put it this way. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, here's the most basic point of this verse in what Paul is trying to say here. He is saying there is a direct parallel drawn between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Holy Spirit, right? That's what he's saying. So we ask, so what precisely is the point of comparison between wine and the Holy Spirit? And we could say the issue or connecting point is influence. Or you could say control. I mean, for example, a person under the strong influence of wine or alcohol, they experience altered behavior. He or she may do things they wouldn't ordinarily do. Emotions will be heightened. Mental processes will be affected. Decision-making abilities can be radically altered. And in a similar way, the filling of the Holy Spirit produces a change in behavior. Now, in two weeks, we're going to read on in Ephesians 5, and we're going to see that the Apostle Paul talks about some of the very real, tangible results in people's lives from the filling of the Spirit. And they're all the outcome, they're all the fruit of being under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so at the start, let's put it this way. Jesus Christ charges you. He calls you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Does that not sound like a worthy calling? Every one of us could use that, couldn't we? Living in the fullness of the Spirit. 
Okay, so how do I do that, really? Well, let's look at this. Back in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, that phrase Paul uses there, be filled, in the original Greek, it's a Greek word, pleiroo. Want to say that with me? Pleiroo. Now, it has the imagery of being crammed full. It's kind of, it's a term that's actually used at one point of a net packed with fish. And that Greek verb, pleiroo, it gives us some insight into Jesus' invitation that we easily miss in our English translation. Now, I know you remember your grammar class growing up, right? Oh, you love grammar. Love that grammar. Verb tenses are important here in understanding pleiroo. Uh, four elements of this. For one, pleiroo here, it's an imperative verb, meaning it's a command in Ephesians 5.18. It's to be part of every follower of Jesus' life. This isn't an exceptional spiritual life. It is the only spiritual life. It's something we must do. But not only is it an imperative form, pleiroo here in Ephesians 5.18, it's a plural verb, interestingly, meaning it's for all believers. It's not just for some select few. It's for everyone. Third thing about it, it's in the present tense here. And, and the Greek present tense means that it's to be a continuous action. That's what it means. Meaning this isn't just something done once and that's it. No, it is something that needs to happen continually, repeatedly. That's why this verse, 518, at times is paraphrased, continue to be filled and filled again with the Holy Spirit. It is something we need to come back to again and again. Now, one more element of this, a play role here, is that it's in the passive form in the original Greek, meaning this isn't something we can do to ourselves. It's something that's done to us. So Paul doesn't say, fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. What Paul is saying essentially is, allow yourself to be filled with the Spirit. Okay, I think we can then draw two important implications from that text in Ephesians 5. For one, the Holy Spirit is ready and willing to fill you. He is ready and willing. Then second, what we can then do is to make ourselves available to him. We make ourselves available. So a natural question then is, Okay, so what is that, being filled with the Holy Spirit, what does that look like in our lives today? What should we expect? I'm so glad you asked that question, because that's the main question I want us to consider today. Everything we've been talking about up to this point has just been setting up that great question you just asked. And to answer that question then, let's look back the first coming of the Spirit on the church at Pentecost, which we'll be celebrating next weekend. Let's start right with the beginnings here. So as you may already felt already, we're going to be somewhat technical in our study of Scripture today, all right? So can I encourage you to stay with me in this? Work to stay with me in this. I think it'll be worth it as we go through it. Okay, so we asked that question again. So how does this filling of the Spirit work? 
Now, to answer that, let's look at three texts in the book of Acts, and then we're going to talk about them, all right? We're going to hit them and then come back and review them together. Ready? You're ready, right? Okay. First text in Acts, go to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And the context here, before we read it, the early church, the in the early church, the good news or gospel of Jesus, it's just beginning to spread. Now, this is what we read in chapter 8 and verse 14. It says, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, meaning they received the good news, the gospel of Jesus, they sent to them Peter and John, two apostles, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Interesting. And it goes on to say, and then they, Peter and John, laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, now this passage, it's raised some really interesting questions historically. One of the common questions being, Okay, so were these Samaritans already believers in Jesus who received the Holy Spirit as a second blessing after conversion? Or, as others argue, were these Samaritans not really yet true believers? And this text here in Acts 8 actually describes their conversion to Christ, which then included them receiving the Holy Spirit. Then another key question with this, so is the Samaritan's experience here, is that intended to be normative? Is is this what you and I should expect in our lives? Or was this exceptional? Was this kind of unique to this early church setting when the Holy Spirit was just first being poured out and given? Okay, now how you answer those questions That seemed to be significant, right? Because if these Samaritans were already believers here, it would seem that this teaches that this baptism in the Holy Spirit was a kind of second blessing that took place after they turned in faith to Christ. Okay, so these are all really good questions. We've studied them before here. I wanted at least acknowledge them as we read this text, but... That's not what I want to focus on today. And actually, I don't think those questions I just mentioned, I don't think they get at the primary focus of this text. Because what I'd like you to notice from this story is simply this. Peter and John apparently knew that the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them and they knew they did receive the Spirit after they laid hands on them. That seems very clear. And in fact, Acts chapter 8 goes on to tell us that the result of these individuals receiving the Holy Spirit, it was so evident that there was local magician there named Simon who tried to pay Peter and John for what appeared to him to be this just stunning magic trick. I got to learn how to do that. All right, so hold all those images in your mind, all right? Let's look at our next passage in Acts and just flip the page over to Acts chapter 9. 
Now, the context in Acts 9 now is Saul, who would soon become the Apostle Paul, is, in Acts 9 at least, he's still a killer, a, a prosecutor or persecutor of Christ's followers. But while he's walking to the city of Damascus, he has this vision of Jesus, and he's blinded by this vision. And so then he's taken to the home of a Christ follower whose name is Ananias. And this is what we read. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 9 and verse 17. And it says, And laying his hands on Paul, Saul, Ananias said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what was the result? Look at verse 20. And immediately Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the guy who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon its name of Jesus? But Saul increased all the more in strength. Now the Greek word there is dunamao, which Dynamite is the word we get from that. He increased all the more in that kind of power, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Okay, you got that picture? Thank you. Hold on to that picture, all right? Okay, third passage, just flip over the next page, or you don't even have to, in Acts chapter 10. Now, in Acts chapter 10, the apostle Peter, he's at the home of a Gentile named Cornelius, and Peter begins sharing with those there the good news that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the deliverer, the Savior. And this is what we read, chapter 10, verse 44. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from the among the circumcised, speaking of the Jews, who had come with Peter, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So how could they tell that the Holy Spirit had been poured out on them? Verse 46, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues, meaning they heard them speaking in these foreign languages that these individuals had never learned. And they were then extolling God. Got that one? Okay. Three passages for us. Now, really, we could really add a fourth, and I'm not going to time, take time to read it today, but I think also Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, which we're again going to celebrate next weekend, in which our Jewish friends call Shavuot. And, and the Spirit then on Pentecost comes upon Jesus' followers, and they also start speaking in other languages that they'd never learned. And then they begin preaching with just an astounding boldness that shocks their audience here who say about them, wait, these are uneducated oafs. How are they preaching like this? Okay, so with all that, let's wrap all those images together and ask this question. What do we make all this? I mean, you can see how these passages could get confusing to lead to a lot of debate about the work and the fruit of the Holy Spirit today, can't you? You can see where the debates could come. And really, you study church history and you see that entire denominations have been formed 
massive church splits have erupted out of different interpretations of these few passages we just read. In fact, the great schism, the first great split in the church, Christian church, really, in 1054 AD, and, and that was a split that split the Christian church into the Western Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. That was caused in large part because of their different teachings on the Holy Spirit. So what I want to do today is this. I want to come at this issue of baptism or receiving the Holy Spirit kind of indirectly uh, by asking in the brevity of our time, okay, so what can we say about receiving the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts that pretty much all of us could agree on? What can we say together about receiving being filled with the Holy Spirit? Let's start with this. What do you think about this? When you honestly read, not just Acts, but the entire New Testament, you cannot help but get the impression of a significant difference from much of our contemporary Christian experience. Would you agree with that? Seems kind of evident, doesn't it? I mean, I've shared with you before that when I was in high school, one weekend I had been studying these very passages in Acts. And then I went out for a drive by myself on that Saturday night. And I, I pulled off to the side of a country road. It was a road called Half Day Road. I could take you to the exact spot today. And I was just wrestling, praying. Why does our church life why does my life look so unlike this? Why does this seem so wildly different? Now, that might sound like an odd teenager, but I think many have had those questions at that age. I think many have. I mean, I think we can understand that perhaps there are some things that took place in the early church that were just for that time, that were part of the first coming of the Holy Spirit on the church. I think we can understand that, that not all of this applies to today. But even so, other things, they would seem to transcend any particular time period. And, and particularly this. For them, the Holy Spirit was a fact of experience. For many Christ followers today, it is only a fact of doctrine. Know what I mean? I mean, throughout the book of Acts, and we've just looked at a few portions of it, a person knows they've received the Holy Spirit, right? It is an experience with effects they can point to. Can we agree, at least, yes, that's what we just read, isn't it? Okay, so with that in mind, let's look then at one other passage. This is a little farther on in Acts, in Acts chapter 19. And the context here in Acts 19 is that Paul, he's come to that great city of Ephesus, and he finds there 
some followers of Jesus, disciples they're referred to as, who as Paul discovers, they only know the baptism of John the Baptist at this point. So they haven't yet been baptized in the name of Jesus. And, and Paul there, he detects something wrong, kind of out of line, and he breaks the whole thing open by asking a very key question in verse 2 of Acts 19. This is what he asks. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I want to make sure you catch this. That is an unusual question for contemporary North American evangelicals, isn't it? Who've been taught, by and large, that the way you know that you've received the Holy Spirit is by being a believer in Jesus. We've been told that you can know that you have the Holy Spirit because all who put their faith in Jesus receive the Holy Spirit. I teach that. I just did earlier. It is a logical implication from Scripture. Okay, so if today, if we today want to know if someone has received the Holy Spirit, what would we tend to ask? I think we would tend to ask, have you believed in Jesus? And if the answer is yes, then we know the person received the Holy Spirit. We know that because receiving the Holy Spirit, it, it's more of a logical implication or an inference from believing. It's not as much an experience to point to. That difference makes sense? So Paul's question here in Acts 19, it isn't like that, is it? Because Paul asked, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Okay, now, if we had been there in that group, we would have looked kind of quizzically at Paul and said, I don't get it, Paul. If you assume we believed in Christ because Paul acknowledges that they believed why don't you then assume that we received the Holy Spirit? Because we've been taught from Scripture that all who believe receive the Holy Spirit. We've been taught to just believe the Spirit is there, whether or not there are any effects or evidences of it. In fact, Paul, your own words would be like you will one day write in Romans 8, verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Paul, you would write that. But here in Acts 19 too, you talk as, as if there's a way to know you've received the Holy Spirit that is different from just believing in Christ. You talk here, Paul, as if we could point to an experience of the Spirit in addition to believing in order to answer your question. And that is, in fact... The way Paul talks here. I mean, when Paul asks, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? He expects that a person who has received the Holy Spirit knows it. Not just because it's kind of a, a logical implication flowing from his or her faith in Christ, but because it's an experience with effects and evidence in her life that he or she can point to. That's how Paul approaches this. 
So for Paul, the best way to test the authenticity of the faith of these so-called disciples is to ask them about their experience of the Spirit. Does that seem odd? It shouldn't. In fact, author John Piper, who is quite far from being a Pentecostal, he put it this way. I sometimes fear that we have so redefined conversion in terms of human decisions and have so removed any necessity of the experience of God's spirit that many people think they are saved when in fact they only have Christian ideas in their head, not spiritual power in their heart. Did you hear him? He said, I fear that many people think they are saved when in fact they only have Christian ideas in their head and not authentic spiritual power in their heart. Friends, I think it's easy to imagine a Christian pastor or a spiritual counselor saying to a new convert of Jesus today, well, don't expect to notice any difference in your life. Just believe you received the Spirit. But my word, that is far from what we see in the New Testament, isn't it? I mean, Scripture makes it evident. Receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God himself, is a real life-changing experience. I mean, Christianity, this Christian life following Jesus, this isn't merely an array of kind of wonderful life principles. It is not merely the performance of kind of religious rituals and sacraments like gathering here. It is the life-changing experience of the indwelling Holy Spirit in us through faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe. And that is what runs all the way through this book of Acts. In every case, the Holy Spirit's coming or being received in the book of Acts, in every case, there are definite experienced effects that one can point to as evidence that they've received the Spirit. But let's also make sure to notice this. Those effects that are listed here, they're not always the same. I mean, for example, for some, as we read through Acts, for some the effect or the fruit of receiving the Holy Spirit was boldness and power in witness for Christ. For others, it was courageous obedience to God. Others, it was speaking in tongues. Others, it was praising God. For others, it was prophesying. For others, it was the working of miracles. For some, it was signs and wonders, like we read of in Acts 6 and 13. Okay, so what does all that tell us? What does that tell us? Friends, I think it tells us this. Whether you understand the Holy Spirit to come at one filling at conversion, or with the second step of baptism of the Holy Spirit after conversion, or in a continuing sequence of fillings of the Spirit. What I think we can all acknowledge from Scripture is this. Scripture expects this filling or baptism of the Spirit 
to be a real, identifiable experience of the living God. Not just a logical inference from a human decision to believe in Christ. Let me just say that again. Scripture expects this filling or baptism of the Spirit to be a real, identifiable experience of the living God, not just an intellectual or logical inference from a human decision to believe in Christ. And it's because with the Holy Spirit, we see it all through Scripture, things change. Transformation begins to take place when we are filled with the Spirit of God. In fact, according to Scripture, there are two consistent marked expressions or signs of the Spirit's presence. For one, Paul speaks of it in his letter to the church in Galatia. This is what we read in Galatians 5.22. In fact, can you put that up? Let's read this together. Read it with me, will you? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those virtues begin to grow in us through the Spirit. But then secondly, there's a promise given back in Acts chapter 1-8 that we read earlier where it says this. In verse 8, Jesus said, you'll receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, friends, we receive power. So we ask, how then will that power be expressed? What will it look like? Well, look at verse 8. What's the result of that power coming? You will be my what? Witnesses in Jerusalem, in your own hometown, and then Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. I mean, this power that comes upon us, when we receive the Holy Spirit, it is primarily, or firstly at least we could say, expressed in us in witnessing to our world through our words and our actions of the reality of the good news of Jesus. With a God-imbued power. Now, do you think that promise was only for the early church? Or could that be intended for us as well? You know, remember the arrows of our symbol? It, friends, it is only in this power, the power of the Holy Spirit, that we will be able to be those kinds of arrows, that we'll be able to share the good news of Jesus of good news of Jesus in word and action with our friends, our community, our city, our world. Because this promise is made to everyone on whom the Holy Spirit comes, not just to a select few. So Clyde, do we receive the Holy Spirit when we turn an authentic faith to Christ? And I think Scripture emphatically says to that, Yes, without question. In fact, here's how Paul puts it at the start of Ephesians. Ephesians 1.13. When you believed in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance. You were sealed. It was God putting a stamp on you saying, you are mine. But it should cause us to pause if the receiving of the Holy Spirit has not brought any experiential evidence of his presence in our lives. 
That should cause us to pause. So let me ask you Paul's question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now you might respond, yes. I was sealed with the Holy Spirit when I turned in faith to Christ, which is absolutely true. But can I ask you, have you seen the power of the Spirit expressed in your life? Because however the Spirit comes, it is an actual experience of God's divine presence. It is not just an idea about our spiritual condition that we infer from a decision we've made. It is a supernatural act that takes place. It is an experience that you can point to to answer that question, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? So as one author notes, you might respond to that question, yes, I have seen the spirit of obedience at work in my life subduing sin, inclining me to follow Christ, even in the greatest temptations and uncertainties. Or you might respond, yes, I have seen the spirit of worship in my life, really filling my heart and mouth with worship to Jesus and God the Father. Or you might respond, yes, I've I've seen the spirit of courage at work in my life, overcoming fear, giving me boldness to, to risk things for the cause of Christ. Or you might respond, yes, I've seen the love of the Spirit incrementally growing in my life, not perfectly, but growing, really prompting me to grace rather than selfishness. Or even yes, even though I know the speaking of tongues and the gift of prophecy and any other spiritual gifts are not the only signs of the Spirit's presence, yet together with other evidences, my spiritual gifts have also been a precious evidence of the power of God that is within me. I've seen him through them. Friends, you might respond with any of those expressions or examples. And there's so many other ways in which God's power can be expressed in your life. But if you cannot answer that question affirmatively today, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Then, beloved, I want, I want to say to you, it may be that either... For some reason, there's been a quenching or blockage in the manifestation of God's power in your life. Because Scripture is also clear, we can quench, we can hinder the Spirit's work in our lives. And you really need to seek the fullness of the Holy Spirit in prayer and obedience. Or, it may be that God's doing more in your life than you realize. Because you... You have never been taught how to recognize what the work of God in your life is. Or, it may be, you've not truly believed in Christ. You've only given lip service to trusting Christ. And so now as we move towards communion, you really are invited to and can call out to Christ in authentic, obedient faith. And and truly, friends, in any of those three cases, I, I urge you to pray as we prepare for communion. And just in a silent prayer, just declare your faith to the Lord, for one. And then along with that, ask for 
the release and outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life. And then also, ask for the ability to discern the work of the Spirit in your life. Because brothers and sisters, if we continue to follow Jesus together, I exhort you, be filled with the Spirit. So let's do that. Let's, as we prepare to come to the table, let's ask the Holy Spirit to manifest his power in our lives, in our church, in every ministry, every relationship, every marriage, every home for his glory. Can we do that? Will you bow your heads with me before we come to the table? And I invite you right now, just in this quietness, to express your heart to God. What is God prompting you with? In a silent prayer, lift your heart to God right now. And our mighty provider, we are weary of limitations. Would you prepare us for greater things? Would you inspire us, equip us, protect us as we declare, seek to accomplish something wonderful by your power for your glory? Would you bless us, Lord, that we may participate fully in the work you're doing in the world and participate fully in the life you've invited us to in your Holy Spirit? And so in our desire to receive everything you have for us, we come now to receive from you in this meal. And we do so in the incredible name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people say, amen. And so we come desiring him. And this, for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have understood there's something of the spirit that's at work when we break this bread and as we drink this cup. There's something of him in work in this. This is more than just an intellectual remembrance. He is at work. And so, Father, we would pray to you, would you feed us with a simple bread and cup? Nourish us, strengthen us, we pray, for we come in faith. In your Son's name, amen. So I invite you to take the cup you have before you and pull back that very top section and hold on to the piece of bread for a moment. Again, I have wonderful news to share with you. The body of Christ was broken for you to let you enter a new life with him through his spirit. So receive from him. And then we take the cup, which brings us back to that opening imagery of that comparison between being drunk with wine and filled with the Spirit. We long to be controlled, influenced by him, amen? By his Spirit. So receive from him, because the blood of Christ was poured out for you. Will you pray with me? Father, you know the uncertainties, the at times confusion, the questions we have in mind, in our minds, about 
walking and living by your spirit. So I pray, Father, you'd give us divine insight into your word, into this life. Even this week, I pray your encouragement for my brothers and sisters that you would show to them your spirit's work in their life, in fruit, in relationships, expressing grace, love, mercy, wherever it would be. So fill us with your spirit as we move in this week that we might bring you glory, we pray. And again, all God's people say, amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, friends? And I do encourage you to come back next weekend. It's Pentecost weekend, our celebration, a global celebration of Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit on followers of Christ. It's also time we invite you to come and be baptized. And again for this, we're going to have towels here. We'll have a change of clothes for you to be baptized in. We want to remove any obstacle there is to you being baptized. And really, even if you aren't going to be baptized, be here. You won't want to miss this gathering uh, together. So glad we can be joined together. And this is a time we get to hang out together now. Grab a coffee. The patio's open. Enjoy the smoke as you're here. And now as you walk in this w- into this week, hear this from God's word. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of his Holy Spirit this week, you may abound in hope in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's walk in that grace. Amen.